We're coming now to our scripture passage this morning upon which our message is based. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79. But I want to begin with prayer, and then I want to make a few remarks before we actually come to the text. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we want to thank you for your grace and your mercies to us in Christ. And we want to thank you for your Holy Spirit, who has uh, given us the prophetic word uh, from Genesis through Revelation. Your word, your special revelation, uh, given to us to lay out for us uh, redemptive history from the very beginning of creation all the way through consummation, ultimately telling us about the coming of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and life in him. And so we pray as we consider the scriptures this second Sunday of Advent, as we have designated it, uh, help us to gain from your word all that would help us to live the lives that you want us to live between the first and second comings of Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with the Advent theme that you have for you in the handout that uh, we've been supplying every week. Uh, and just remind us that uh, as last Sunday and this Sunday and next Sunday, the what is unifying these, uh, these passages and the way I'm treating them would essentially be something like this. Uh, if human history has God's purpose, moving it from a past beginning to a future consummation, then the lever and fulcrum of all of history is the coming of Christ into this world and his atoning work upon the cross. Christmas and Easter are never to be divided or separated or celebrated independently of one another in our understanding and in our faith. What makes the cradle evoke great sentiment is the cross for which the baby was born. Christ is always the baby born to die. And then specifically with respect to uh, today's text and today's message, uh, the theme could be stated this way. The cradle to cross connection must always be kept in view. The coming of Christ into the world was so that he could die to save his people from their sins. But before we come to this passage that we're going to be looking at, which is essentially the prophecy of Zechariah, we have to remember the context of what has actually come before. The context is really Luke 1.26, where we read that the angel Gabriel came to Mary in the sixth month, that is to say, it's the sixth month that is the context. But the sixth month of what? Well, it happens to be the sixth month of the pregnancy of Elizabeth, the, the elderly relative of Mary, who is married to the elderly priest, Zachariah. Remember that six months earlier, this angel, the same angel Gabriel, who is going to appear to Mary, appeared to Zechariah while Zechariah is, is serving in the temple. And he tells Zechariah that his prayers have been heard, that his wife Elizabeth is going to bear a son, and they are to name this son John, and that even from his mother's womb, John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that he's going to have this very special calling as the forerunner of the Lord. He's going to come in his ministry in the spirit and power of Elijah, uh, as it says, 
to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And that's in Luke 1.17. Now, in amazement and disbelief, Zechariah responds with doubt, verse 18, and he says to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife has advanced in years. And the angel answers him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So our text, Luke chapter 1, 67 to 79, this text, this passage, this prophecy, takes place on the very day that the baby John is born, which is six months before Christ is born. It's at the very end of Zacharias's nine months of silence. And so we read Luke 1, beginning at verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall, shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now here we have the Holy Spirit speaking through Zechariah. The prophecy contains the purpose and meaning of two lives, of the life of Jesus Christ and the life of Zechariah's son John who then later, of course, is known as John the Baptist. Although it's the message about Christ that we're going to focus on from verses 68 to 75, first we have to look at verses 76 to 79 about John the Baptist. We have to do this because it's these four verses which make it very, very clear what the prophecy is actually saying earlier about Christ. And so, verse 76 this verse actually tells us who Jesus shall be in light of the very mission of John the Baptist. So note what it says in verse 76, that John is going to be a prophet of the Most High, and he's going to be a forerunner before the Lord who prepares the way of the Lord. So the question is, well, who is this Lord? And the answer is, it's the child of Mary. The angel Gabriel told Mary that the child to be born of her would be called the Son of the Most High. He would be given the throne of his father David, 
and he would have an everlasting kingdom. Now, then when Mary goes to stay with Elizabeth and Zechariah, as soon as Mary enters their house, Elizabeth exclaims this. This is Luke chapter 1, verses 41 to 43. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud voice, or with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So the child to be born of Mary, about whom Zechariah is prophesying, and before whom the son of Zechariah will be the forerunner to prepare his way, the one who's going to be the horn of salvation in the house of David, this is Christ the Lord. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. And the angel who first spoke to the shepherds the night of Jesus' birth, well, he said to them, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So John the Baptist is the forerunner of the Messiah, who is Jesus, who is the Lord, who is Emmanuel, who is God with us. Then in verses 77 to 78, Zechariah continues in his prophecy. And here we see what Jesus will do. We see this in what John the Baptist, as the forerunner, is going to address. That is to say, what is he going to speak about? What is his ministry going to be in terms of preparing a people for the Lord? Well, he's going to address the issue of salvation. He's going to address the people of God in terms of the forgiveness of their sins. This is the main thrust of what John is going to do. He's going to prepare the way of the Lord. He's going to prepare the way before the Lord Jesus to give to the people the knowledge of their salvation and the forgiveness of their sins. And this means that the mission of Christ is to bring salvation for his people through the forgiveness of their sins. This is what Jesus will do. And then we have the last part of this prophecy about Zechariah, Zechariah's prophecy with respect to his son. And it has significant allusions to Old Testament prophecies about what will take place when Christ comes. Uh, references to Malachi and to Isaiah. So we have this phrase in verse 70, the sunrise shall visit us, which connects with Malachi 4.2. And then we have in verse 79, light to those who sit in darkness and shadow of death, which connects to Isaiah 9.2. But then we have this last statement about guiding our feet into the way of peace. That phrase sums up the entire hope of the Old Testament, that the Messiah would come and end the conflict and brokenness of the curse and the fall. Because to be guided into the way of peace is to be guided into the... It is to be guided into a personal reconciliation with God himself. Thus, it is to go from the darkness of sin, the darkness of the shadow of death, into the light of God's presence, where the way of peace and reconciliation with God is found. Now, even though these truths come from the second part of Zechariah's prophecy, they set up the right understanding about Christ that we find in verses 68 to 75. These verses are specifically about the child 
to be born to Mary. They contain three main ideas, which are really very remarkable ideas, because these three ideas together express the central Old Testament message and the Old Testament's one central concern, which is namely the Messiah, namely the Christ. And so these three themes happen to be the horn from the house of David, the mouth of the prophets of old, and the holy covenant sworn to Abraham. Now, with each of these, we need to see the connection between Christmas and Easter, between the cradle and the cross, between the coming of the Messiah and the death that he must die. Because once again, the main idea in this series and in this particular passage is this. The cradle to the cross connection must always be kept in view. Because the coming of Christ into this world was so that he could die to save his people from their sins. So let's once again read verses 68 and 69, where Zechariah prophesies in this way. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, the horn from the house of David, this is a significant phrase in terms of encapsulating uh, so much of the significance of messianic prophecy as it pertains to the house of David. Because, first of all, the idea of a horn is that it's a metaphor for strength. It's taken from the animal life common to Israel. One can think of the horns of a ram, but particularly and especially uh, the horns of the most massive wild ox. The concept of the horn becomes an epitome of their strength. And therefore, the idea of horn gets connected to the house of David as representing what is the greatest strength of the house of David. It is the messianic promise that God has given to David. Uh, it is, in fact, uh, the idea that the Messiah shall come. So the horn becomes a symbol for the Messiah. Now, this is what the prophecy says about this horn. First of all, in this horn, God has visited his people. Now, this, this visitation of God with his people, in terms of what we're looking at here, we're talking about Mary being promised the baby. Uh, so, really, we're talking about the cradle message here. God has visited his people, the child to be born to the house of David through Mary. And this child, God visits his people. And, of course, this is the Emmanuel idea, the God with us theme. This is the reality and truth of the Incarnation. This is a child who is properly described in the second stanza of O Come All You Faithful. God of God, light of light, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb, very God, begotten, not created. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Then secondly, in this horn, God has redeemed his people. So the message of this prophecy is that the mission of the Christ is redemption. This is the cross. Here is the manner in which Christ shall be the horn of salvation. He shall be the power and the salvation for all of his people as Christ himself will die for their sins. 
And so this phrase, the horn from the house of David incorporates and combines incarnation, redemption, the cradle and the cross, Christmas and Easter. And the second main idea we find in verses 70 to 71, the mouth of the prophets of old. So reading these verses again, as he, God, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, two significant ideas we can find here. First of all, would be this, God's mouth. Now think about this. Even though these holy prophets of old were many prophets who spoke at, at many times and in various ways, the prophecy speaks of them as one mouth. Which is to say, even though God spoke through these many different prophets, God spoke by one mouth, singular, not mouths of his holy prophets, to emphasize, to make clear, even to make it incredibly emphatic that this one mouth of God speaking through all of these prophets has one message, one principal thing centered upon the Messiah who was going to save his people from their enemies and from the hand of all who has hated them. Now, historically then, when we think about all the prophets of old, that mouth began to speak with Abraham. Uh, and then Jacob, and then Moses, and then beginning with Samuel, a whole stream of holy prophets spoke and wrote with this one mouth, all the way to the time of Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet. They all told this one story of God's coming Messiah, and Samuel in particular spoke about David's house, and every prophet afterward did the same. This is Christ's own testimony. On his resurrection day, Jesus is traveling with two of his disciples. They don't know who he is. They're traveling on the road to Emmaus. And we read in Luke 24, 27, that he begins to teach them. And so we read, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then, Following Christ in this way of understanding the Old Testament and its message, the apostles and the New Testament together, these writers all say the same thing. That the prophetic witness and the promises of that prophetic witness are centered on Christ, God's Messiah. Which is to say, this one mouth has one uniform message, centered in Christ. In such a manner that the Apostle Paul can put it this way, 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, For all the promises of God find their yes, which means their confirmation, their fulfillment, all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. 2 Corinthians 1.20 the second thing is God's message. The message that comes out of that one mouth carries one main concern, and it is salvation. It is rightly described as the end of all conflict, 
the end of all spiritual warfare. Now, that idea, the end of conflict, the end of spiritual warfare, comes directly from the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40. Consider verses 1 to 2, where God says to the prophet, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then further down in the same passage, verses 9 and 10, we read, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. See, this is God's message. Salvation is in the Messiah. The Messiah comes. He saves his people from their sins. Their iniquity is pardoned. The state of warfare ends. God's people are saved from their enemies and from the hand of all those who hate them. Now, the Apostle Peter tells the New Testament church the same thing. That this was God's message in Christ, salvation from sin. So in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 11, Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So think about this. From Abraham. 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years B.C., to Malachi, 400 B.C., over a span of 1,500 years, God's messengers spoke with one mouth, one voice. They maintained one message that the Messiah was going to come and bring to his people salvation from their sins. And then the third main idea in what Zechariah prophesies concerning Christ. The third main idea, the holy covenant sworn to Abraham. So verses 72 to 75, we read, To show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, we've mentioned Abraham as the first of those who spoke with the one mouth of God because it's with Abraham that God set apart a people through whom he would make clear his message of salvation in Christ. God did so with Abraham. He did so by making that message a promise a holy covenant, an oath. And as the Holy Spirit says through Zechariah, God swore to Abraham that he would grant to the people of God their deliverance from the power of their enemies in order to serve God all of their days in holiness and righteousness and to do so through the Christ that he would send. Now in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Peter speaks exactly this way 
as he speaks about the history of the Jewish people as set apart by God from Abraham onward. So in Acts chapter 3, 24, 25, and 26, Peter says, And all the prophets have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, meaning Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So Peter notes that the central promise of this covenant, this oath, was this. And in your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And, and Abraham's offspring, Abraham's seed, would be in fact Christ, the one who would bless all the families of the earth. And then the Apostle Peter makes, the Apostle Paul makes the same connection between Christ and the covenant with Abraham. And he does so in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. We read Paul saying this, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. So, like Peter, Paul is saying that Christ himself is that offspring who is the promise of the covenant. And that in Christ, God was fulfilling his covenant promises to Abraham. And that the blessing of Abraham would be unto the salvation of the world. Then also in that same chapter in Galatians, a few verses earlier, Paul had said it this way, verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It is in Christ that God's promise to Abraham is fulfilled. Now, some 2,000 years pass from the time that Abraham swears his oath and his covenant and his promise to Abraham. But the Holy Spirit says through Zechariah that in the child to be born of Mary, his holy covenant is fulfilled. And that God's people will receive knowledge of the salvation of their salvation and the forgiveness of their sins, that this one will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and that they will have them in Christ, in his salvation for them, their feet guided into the way of God's peace, which is to say, the cradle leads to the cross. The coming of this baby into this world is so that he would die for the sins of his people. That the child that Mary would soon deliver would be the one that would soon deliver her and all who would place their faith and trust in him. Now, to wrap this up, Zechariah's prophecy is about the lever and fulcrum of all of human history. 
human history begins and human history will end. But here is the turning point. God comes into human history. This is Christmas. This is the cradle. But God also changes the trajectory of human history from the destruction that justice demands to the point of grace and mercy through the cross. The horn of David submits to the suffering of the cross to die for the sins of his people, to satisfy the demands of a holy justice that iniquity might be pardoned and that the warfare of God's people would come to an end. And then he rises from the dead, showing that his victory is assured as he ascends to the right hand of the Most High in heaven, inheriting there the throne of his father David, so that forevermore he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this, the good news, would be preached from the mountain of Zion, that the message of salvation would go forth from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. What then are we to do with the truth of Scripture as we hold the cradle and the cross tightly together? First, we must apprehend, appropriate, embrace the biggest of all truths. The gospel of Christ changes everything. Everything about life because of the sure and certain hope of the future eternal life in which true righteousness dwells. Through the salvation we have in Christ, we are guaranteed to be heirs of the world to come. And that world looks like this. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy, and all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. From Isaiah 11, 6 through 10. All of creation, no longer red in tooth and claw, but perfect harmony among all of God's creatures, perfect peace for all forever. Further, for us who are saved by the cradle and the cross, the badness of this world is the worst we shall ever experience. The best we have ever experienced is but a small foretaste of the goodness that we shall have forever. The brief moments here of happiness always end. The happiness there shall never end. We shall truly live happily ever after. 
we are guaranteed heirs to the world to come. And that reality looks like this. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. Revelation 21, 5-7 And so, as Christians, we can all say, Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now ye need not fear the grave. Jesus Christ was born to save. Calls you one and calls you all to gain his everlasting hall. Christ was born to save. Christ was born to save. Amen. God and Father, we thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for this most incredible prophecy that the Holy Spirit presented to the priest Zechariah. We thank you for how it testifies concerning both the cradle and the cross, our Lord Jesus, and how it enables us to keep together as one deep celebration the coming of Christ, the coming of our Savior to die, that we would have salvation in his name and by his blood. Enable us by this grace that we have in Christ to always look forward to what lies ahead, strengthened by his grace, to endure the hardships of this life, having a clear vision of all that is to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.